you have your Bibles, would you, would you uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 6? Let's take a minute and pray before we jump into the text. Father, we know that right at this moment, you're present here, and you're present in the hospital room where CJ is laying. We know that you're present in nursing homes across the country and churches where believers are meeting and in homes. God, we ask that in relation to us here at New Hope, that as we turn our attention to you specifically to learn from you, that you would grant us the high honor and the privilege of being taught through the work of your Holy Spirit. Your word says that your spirit is our teacher and our guide. So, Father, as much as we desire anything, we desire to know more about you and your nature and your character, especially in moments like this. Father, we ask that you would lead us. Lead us gently, but firmly. Show us what you would like us to know. Help us to understand your character, perhaps in a way that we've never seen it before. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name that you would lead us. Amen. I have to frame for you um, the, the principle that we're looking at this morning when we talk about work. And no matter your work environment, whether you're retired or you're active in the workplace, you work on a daily basis. You, you may not work for money if you're retired, but you still work. You're laboring. If you're active in the workplace or you're a homemaker, you're working. You're, you're productive. And so as we look at this passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, we have a framework of understanding that Paul's using this imagery of masters and slaves, which really could be the imagery of employers and employees. So I'm going to ask you to think with me through God's view of work and how he values it by looking at Genesis chapter 1 to start. Let me take you all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis. You'll see it up on the screen. And this is a little bit longer passage, but just bear with me. I want to set this up. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. He blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word subdue as it's used there means to take control or to take authority over. Now jump forward with me in a few verses to chapter 2 and verse 8. Verse 8 says this, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Go forward with me a few more verses to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, we in our thinking would say when we think of perfection, the absolute state of um, ecstasy, we wouldn't necessarily think of a place where you go to work. But when God uses this phrase, cultivate and keep, we want to make sure that we understand what he's doing here because God has created perfection, the most perfect environment ever known to man, and he places man in there and he says, I have something I want you to do while you're in this place. 
So let's look at this phrase, and it's in the Hebrew language, this phrase, to cultivate it. This word is abad. You'll see it up on the screen, and as well, you'll see it in your notes this morning. But it literally means one who is laboring, a person who is a laborer or a husbandman, one who is a keeper. It literally means to work. So here's the image. Before the fall, before sin, before man screwed things up, God has man working in a state of perfection. See, what I've come to understand by studying the Bible is that laziness is a product of the fall. It's something that we constantly fight against. It's a condition that's driven by our sinful nature. And laziness is something that we're drawn into. Idleness is like a magnet just drawing us right to it. When God's purpose for us is that we would be productive, that's how he designed us. So God designed us to be productive, and then he also said, and I'm going to use this phrase for next week as a setup. I'm not going to get too deep into it. He said not only to cultivate it, but I want you to keep it. And I want you to see the Hebrew word for keep it up on the screen. It's the word shamar. Now, when you look at this definition here, you say, well, what's, what's going on here? God said cultivate. I get that. God's got Adam working in the garden to cultivate it, but keep it means to set up a hedge to be aware, to be a guard. Why does Adam have to be a guard in the Garden of Eden? And why is he put on alert? Well, that's all you're going to get for this morning because we're going to save it next week for the issue of spiritual warfare. But there's something remarkable that God has asked Adam to do, not only to work, but to guard. So here's what we understand. We were created to worship, and we were created to work. The first environment is a labor environment. We also know that Jesus in heaven is working right now. Jesus himself said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So he's working on that place that he's going to draw us to himself at one day. Work is part of God's nature. So God designed us and he gifted us and he gave us abilities and he's equipped us to earn a living, to provide for our families, to set up an environment in which we're being productive. Yet it's man's fallen nature to take God's provisions and turn them into selfish goals. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it's part of our nature for men not to get along with women and women not to get along with men, husbands and wives. So we're told to be in submission And children, as we saw last week, are going to be disobedient to their parents because it's part of the fallen nature. So God has a solution for each of those categories. He also has a solution to labor problems. And God's solution is found in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. So our text is going to take us on the issue of submission farther than any of the earlier examples that we've already looked at. And Paul is going to press really, really, really hard on your heart this morning because it's not just an issue of the outward appearance. It's not just a matter of you doing it because of obligation. But rather, it's an issue that's internal because God expects a spirit of submission. So here's what we're going to attempt to do. We're going to contrast first century Israel, first century Rome to 2013 and try and get our minds around this description that's being given to us this morning, especially when he starts talking about employees and employers when he talks about slaves and masters. Go with me to verse 5 of Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 5 says this, "'Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters.'" according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, 
not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, of all places, the last place you'd expect to read about submission is here. Because if you understand first century um, Israel, first century Rome, you know that slaves are, by their very nature, forced to obey their masters. And so, who'd think there might be a problem in getting a slave to obey what he's told to do? Well, the difference that's going on here is between conquest and submission. Uh, Let me frame it for you this way. Very few slaves entered into slavery voluntarily. And so this is something they're forced into, so it's safe to conclude that those who are in obedience to their masters are not doing it voluntarily, but it's something they're compelled to do. They're the ones who are most unlikely to have a submissive spirit. So Paul's beginning to press on the heart already. So let's talk about the framework of first century Israel, first century Rome, so we understand the issue of slavery, especially when you hear Paul say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, or when you hear Jesus say, I am a servant, using the same language of slave. Here's what we know about slavery in the first century. There were most likely, as far as evidence shows us, that in Italy, what we know as Italy today, six million people living as slaves. Now, that's just Italy proper. The Roman Empire spread out far beyond Italy. It spread out into Germany and Great Britain to the north and to Greece and into Asia and into Africa. So just within Italy's confines, there's six million slaves. And slavery is not racially based, it's economic based. Because you might live in a kingdom that had been conquered by Caesar. And therefore, you were subjugated to slavery. So let me frame it for you this way. If you lived in France, and maybe growing up in high school, you learned in world history about a region known as Gaul, G-A-U-L. Well, Gaul would be what we would consider today modern-day France. If you lived in France and your nation's soldiers were not strong enough when Caesar came calling and your nation's soldiers lost to Caesar's soldiers, the Roman Empire, you were very likely to be sold into slavery. No matter if you were a physician or an attorney or a teacher or a cabinet maker, it didn't really matter They owned you, and they could sell you if they wanted to. And as a matter of fact, in one day, Julius Caesar sold 53,000 inhabitants of the nation of France to some slave traders, simply because he didn't want to feed them. He had swept into France, conquered a region, and he didn't want to feed them, care for them, shelter them, or take them all the way back to Rome. So he sold them to slave traders. So this is what happened. Slave traders would typically follow the army of Rome wherever it went in the world. And they would just stay in the hedges, waiting in the trees and the bushes for Caesar to be victorious. And when Julius Caesar was victorious in this particular day, slave traders came up to him and they struck a deal with him. And on the spot, he sold 53,000 people. So this is what would typically happen to someone who was just sold into slavery. They would be taken to a city marketplace where slave buyers were at. And they would be put on a large round table, which would be revolving in the marketplace before everyone. A sign would be hung up on them, and in the middle of their chest would be a placard, which is hanging around their neck, and it would list for everyone who could read their educational status, their country of origin, their physical condition, 
their intellect and their capacity to absorb new information and the languages that they spoke. So those individuals, because Rome wanted to know what Rome was buying and they really wanted to understand if they were getting shafted or not, they demanded to see the product. And so every single slave was stripped naked. Men, women, and children put on this round table in a constant revolving circle. If a slave had a cap on his head, that meant that the slave was being sold with no guarantee you couldn't get your money back. But if there was no cap, you could get your money back within six months if you didn't like the way the slave performed. Kind of like buying used cars today. That's the way they treated them in this environment. So when you hear Paul use this language of slavery, you understand the framework that he's coming from. Because the vast majority of businesses in the New Testament were family-operated. They were also operated with slave labor because Rome thought labor was beneath its dignity. As a matter of fact, by the time that Paul is writing this letter that you're reading today, idleness had fallen on the citizens of Rome. And they believed work was not a good thing. It was certainly not something from God. And it's nothing they wanted to be part of. So they wanted slaves to do their laboring, even doctors and teachers. So because they thought it was beneath their dignity, the entire empire gradually came to function by slave power, except for the government and the military. So you imagine today in the United States of America, if 40% of the population of our nation was slave labor. That's what they had at this period of time. And slaves were discarded as though they were animals or tools. As a matter of fact, I want you to see a quote this morning so you can get your mind around how they were thinking. Cato was a Roman statesman. And this statesman summed up for us the mindset of the Romans at this period of time. Old slaves, this is a quote from him, old slaves should be thrown on a dump. And when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It is not worth your money. Take six slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools. Now, obviously, if you're in slavery, you want to get out of slavery. And you'll do anything that you can to get out of slavery. So many of them ran away. Every slave owner kept a branding iron in his house because he would send someone out to hunt down the slaves when they ran away because they're worth thousands of dollars to them. And when they found them and they'd haul them back, and inevitably they did, they took that branding iron and they embedded upon their forehead a hot branding iron with an F on it, which meant fugitivus, fugitive, one who runs away. And from that point on, that person was put in chains. Their labor would only be as they were locked up. Now, as you might imagine, as the news of Jesus Christ spread throughout Europe, moving throughout the Roman Empire, and people heard of who he was and what he did, and the amazing stories of the resurrection and the healings and the forgiveness of sin, many, many, many slaves turned their hearts over to Jesus. And thereby, they became children of God and joint heirs with Jesus. And so logically, Many people looked on bondage as being totally inconsistent with their new standing before God. They didn't see themselves as slaves. They reasoned God's own children should not be subservient to any human. And so Paul finds himself not only writing to people who have come out of pagan lifestyle into this new little church in Ephesus trying to learn how to submit to each other, but he's got owners of businesses, CEOs, sitting with slaves who have just been conquered 
and brought into the realm from other kingdoms, people who have been sold into slavery. And those are the people who are going to church together, worshiping together, and they're not getting along. And so Paul's trying to help them to understand what it means to be obedient. So we have this phrase used again that was used last week when we were talking about children being obedient to their parents when it says, slaves, be obedient to your masters. It's the word hupakao. And we talked last week about it being put under, someone who's putting themselves under the authority of someone over the top of them. It means uninterrupted obedience, not just when we desire to do it, not just when the circumstances are right or when employers are fair, but we obey at all times in every situation. The exception was this we talked about last week. When someone asks you to do something that is ungodly and against the word of God, that's the one exception in which you check out. So I had someone this, uh, last night at the Saturday night service approach me after the service hearing this teaching and said that um, on the job site, they were asked the very first day of their employment to comply to a company policy, which was, and this is a sales position, when a, when a customer would call in and ask for a product, if they didn't have the product in stock and they knew they didn't have the product in stock, they were supposed to still tell the customer they had the product in stock and that they would be shipping it out that day, even if they couldn't ship it out that day. So this person, being a believer in Jesus Christ, came to me last, <clears throat> came to me last night and said that she was left with a decision. She's a Christ follower. She's working for an employer who is not a Christ follower who's asking her to be deceitful on the job. And she said, I had to determine what do I do. In that particular setting, she said, I took a couple hours to think about it, and then I decided this is the moment I'm going to put my stake in the ground. If they fire me, they fire me. So she walked back to her employer's office, knocked on the door, and said, I know what you've asked me to do. I know what company policy is. You don't want to lose any of the customers to your competitors. I totally understand that. But I'm a follower of Jesus, and I cannot willingly deceive your customers or my customers. I will do what I can to help them understand. We'll get the product to them as fast as we can, but I can't willingly lie. She said in that moment, the employer looked at her and dropped his mouth wide open and said, in all the years I've done this business, I have never had anyone ever confront me on that issue. Okay, let's come up with a line that you can use then. And so they started concocting a line. And she said, wait, wait, wait. It doesn't have to just be a line that I use. It has to be something that just comes from my heart. I'm just going to be honest with them. And he said, well, we can't go quite to that level. And so she said, well, no, that's what I need to do. That's who I am. I'm a believer in Jesus. Well, that's a believer who's working for a non-believer. But what about believers who are working for believers? How much harder do we work? How much harder do we labor in that situation? Well, Scripture talks to us specifically about that in 1 Timothy 6. Look with me on the screen. 1 Timothy 6.1, it says, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves, and again, you can insert the word employee there, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more. It presses again on the heart. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So the temptation, and I hear this from people who are owners of businesses. Uh, I just had an individual approach me about this last week who is a CEO of a large corporation that attends here and said, one of the things that drives him crazy 
is those who work within his corporation who are believers that know that he's a believer and try and take advantage of their status as co-believers in Christ and don't work as hard or rebel against authority and try and push the boundaries. Now, what we understand from Scripture is that anyone who resists the authority that's over them is really resisting God. This comes right from Scripture. You might want to put this in your notes this morning. It comes from Romans 13.1. It says this, There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So what we know is that God has allowed our bosses to be where they are. And God has allowed subordinates to be where they are. All authority has been established by God. So this requires a heart check on our part, really to go deep and look inwardly. Many people outwardly keep the rules on the job site because they don't want to get fired. They don't want to lose their job. But inwardly, they still rebel. Uh, Bruce Edwards reminded me after the 9 o'clock service, it's kind of like the four-year-old who's put in the corner by his parents and said, sit in that chair until I tell you to get up. And the four-year-old responds with, I'm sitting here, but my heart is still standing. Because we have that rebellious nature to us, right? That's just who we are. Well, outwardly, we might keep the rules, but inwardly, we're still rebelling. In the context of this passage, the ungodly servant is appearing to be obedient, but his spirit may still be in rebellion because he's behaving when the master is present, but if the master leaves, the slave lets up. So what we're really talking about here is the extent of Christian submission goes way beyond the outward appearance. I put some bullet points in your notes this morning of, of four phrases that Paul used of a, a deeper context that's going on here. as a deeper spirit of submission. Let me show you the first one. and It, it kind of sets us back on our heels. With fear and trembling. Uh, that one's kind of weird. I'll explain that in a minute. And the next one is, in the sincerity of your heart, verse 5. The third one, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, verse 6, but doing the will from, of God from the heart. So there's this inward dimension of submission which accompanies the outward act of obedience. And all these things set us apart as being Christ followers so that people in the workplace, your coworkers and laborers can look at you and say, there is something different about that person. They don't just work when the foreman's present. And they don't do just the best of their ability when the foreman's present. They do it all the time. Now let's look at this phrase here with fear and trembling because that makes us think, what, are we supposed to cower in front of the presence of our employers? Well, this phrase, when you see it used in the Bible, is speaking of someone who's aware of a deep sense of humility because of their dependence on God. As a matter of fact, Paul uses it in Philippians 2 when he writes to the church. Let me show you this on the screen. Philippians 2.12, it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have also always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. It's not that Paul's there or that Paul's not there. It's God who's working in us. So fear and trembling means we're conducting our lives knowing it's not our strength. It's God who's empowering us to do this. So the attitude is not cowering, please don't fire me. The attitude is one of honor and respect because we're in a position that God placed us in. And so the obedience comes from an outflow of submission to Him. And do you notice where it originates? It originates in the sincerity of the heart. Now in the English language, when we use the word sincere, we think of someone who means well or they're very, very genuine. That's not the way the word was used in the New Testament. 
Sincerity of the heart talks about a singleness of purpose. I'm going to show you the word up on the screen. It's in your notes as well. It's haplotes. And haplotes literally means singleness without dissimulation. So here's the agenda by which this word is used here. You enter into a responsibility that your employer gives you or your responsibility wherever your workplace is with the thought that you're doing everything that you're doing without mixed motives, but rather the singleness of purpose to the glory of God. Let me give you an example of this. We see in Scripture the admonition to give out of the generosity of our heart. So when we pick up a giving envelope and we fill out a check or we put some cash in it and we drop it in the offering box, Scripture says that when we do that, we're supposed to do that as a cheerful giver, one who gives generously, and that we're supposed to do it as unto the Lord. So you see this word generosity tied in with haplotase because it also applies to financial giving. But in the workplace, when we give ourselves to God, we're giving out of the generosity of who we are in light of who God is. So we go over and above, just like when we give financially, going over and above what we can give. In the workplace, we go over and above what we can give, meaning beyond the minimum requirements exceeding the employer's expectations with one singular focus, which is to please God. That's the reason haplotase is used here. Now, Paul's going to press a little bit harder on the heart because he uses in verse 6 the phrase, not as men-pleasers by way of eye service. See, the man-pleaser really does seek to please his master, but only when his master is present, only when the foreman's walking by when the supervisor's going down the row, when the general manager of the store happens to be in the room. That's the one who's really looking to please, but only when they're present. And when they're not present, they drop the guard and they let their production down. So here's another example for you. It comes from 1 Peter 2. Peter is writing to some slaves who were in a household. They were servants of a very wealthy man. And they're working in a house of a mansion. And this is Peter's instructions for them. You'll see it on the screen. 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, This finds favor with God. So here's the contrast. I've been in the workplace myself long enough outside of the church environment, but also in ministry environment to know this for sure. People who surround us in the workplace, our coworkers, our bosses, will not listen to the testimony of a Christian who does shoddy, irresponsible, careless work or is constantly complaining. They just won't listen to individuals like that, and so our testimony is damaged. So Paul takes it a step further, and he says, you've got to do it even when you're being ill-treated, even in situations where you're not being well cared for. Here in 2013, we can take this one step further yet, because we're not compelled to be where we're at. No one made us take the job that we have, so we can quit 
If a Christian finds himself in an employment situation where it's intolerable and they can't stand it, quit. They can look for something else. But as long as they're employed, we have a responsibility to work to the very best of our ability because it's pleasing to the Lord. So he goes into verse 7. This begins to wrap up here. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. You see, submission is really producing a really greater obedience. It's obedience of the heart. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. I think Paul understood that you're going to be working in a workplace where you're not always appreciated even if you're the owner of the business. Not everybody sees what you do, and they don't always appreciate what you do. So whether you're the employer or the employee, you're not always rewarded for the great length you go to to serve others around you. And Paul understood that because he's saying that no matter what, whatever good thing you do, even when no one's noticing, you're going to receive reward back from God if you're doing it unto God if you're doing it for his purpose. So your employers may not appreciate you, and they may not even be aware sometimes of the work that you're doing, but God notices. So in your notes this morning, I put down three attitudes that we should have, kind of a summary of what we've looked at so far. Three attitudes that should come out of us in the workplace environment. You'll see them on the screen as well. There's the first one. A Christian is going to be a person who submits inwardly as well as outwardly to our earthly master, whomever that might be. And the next one, we obey our earthly master as an expression of our submission to the Lord. Not to man, but to God. And here's the third one. We're looking to our heavenly master for our reward. Because ultimately it comes from him. Because no good thing, hear me on this, no good thing that you do ever escapes God's attention. When it's done for his glory, it never escapes his notice. God knows God sees, God understands, God credits you, and God rewards. He is always, always, always dependable. Do you hear that? Your God is dependable. And so when you feel like you're being neglected, you feel like no one pays attention, there's more jewels being put in the crown than you can count And that's the God who rewards. So here's where it wraps up. And you're going to think, wow, God has a whole lot less to say to employers than he does employees. Well, look very, very closely at verse 9. He says in verse 9, And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Imagine how what Paul has written here could transform the worldview of someone who's gone into slavery either because their kingdom was conquered and they were hauled away or someone who owns a business and they heard about Jesus and now they're coming to church in Ephesus and they're hearing about these things that God chose them in eternity past and that they were predestined and that they've got a future in heaven with God and that they're selected as children of God and therefore we're supposed to submit to one another and now we're being told we're supposed to be obedient and they've been joined together with other believers. Imagine how that would change their worldview. It's a dramatic contrast from the first century culture. And so can you imagine what a different place Rome would have been if every single Christian master would have used his position to benefit his slaves Now try and put yourself in their place. 
You've been raised your entire life, if you're an owner of a slave in a wealthy environment, you've been raised on the silver spoon of Rome, you've had servants in your household your entire life, and you hear these commands from God about how you're supposed to treat people. And as a result of it, you begin treating employees or servants in the house as co-heirs with Jesus. And you treat them, Paul says, do the same thing to them. You treat them as equals. Can you imagine the peer pressure that would have put on those who were non-Christians, slave owners in the first century environment when they see employer A over here doing things with his slaves to elevate them when they're abusing and mistreating their slaves? How that would have changed the framework of their thinking. It, it must be that threatening was a really common practice at this period of time because it's the only thing that Paul calls out. Well, what we know about people who threaten people is that they're trying to instill obedience through fear. And what the principle is that's coming out here is that Christ-honoring leadership really motivates people through grace and through gratitude. So the idea here is of a, an employer who loosens up the authority and the power and stops throwing their weight around. So Paul's writing about attitudes and actions that will set us apart from everyone else. Husbands to wives, children to parents, employers to employees, employees to employers, every facet of life so that we'll frame our thinking that we are in submission to each other because in reality, we're all slaves to Jesus Christ because he's the one who died for us and gave himself for us. So we understand that we submit to one another in the fear of Christ. I don't often conclude with a conclusionary statement, but this morning you'll notice in your notes that I put down a conclusionary statement of, of, of four different points. Something that I think is very important for you to take is such practical stuff. Just take it with you as you move on this week. But let's look at the first one. The first one is we're a, we have this responsibility to understand we're in submission to the higher authorities because it's rooted in our submission to God. That's a biblical principle. And the second one is we're in obedience and submission to those in authority over us because it's the will of God. It's the will of God for your life. And number three, submission and obedience goes way beyond the surface level. Just when people are watching you. The surface level of appearance, it goes to the heart. And here's the biggest reason why. Number four, because the glory of God is the chief end of our salvation. Not about Mark Kring's happiness and not about Mark Kring's contentment, but about the glory of God. So everything that we do is for the advancement of His kingdom and for who He is. Would you pray with me in recognition of that, that God would seal these things in our heart? Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for such very, very practical truth. These aren't things that are glamorous and they aren't necessarily things that entertain but they're very practical, Father. And we know that you had them written down because it would affect our lives and those who do not know you yet. So God, that we would be bold witnesses for you this week as we move forward. That'd be a great desire of yours. And so we just ask that you would strengthen us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would walk before you in boldness, willing to take on these challenges that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we request this. Amen.